LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com I'm your host Greg Moffat and today we present part 3 of our interview with Jason Horsley discussing his book The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. If you haven't yet heard the first two parts you can find them at LegalizeFreedom.com That's Legalize-Freedom.com and you can spell Legalize with an S or a Z. The interview resumes as we discuss the so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s and how it helped prepare the ground for a world in which sexual and moral boundaries are now at risk of being dissolved entirely. Well, this was a big part of Crowley's uh, existence in philosophy. So let's say something, um, as we touched upon last time, about sex, specifically the so-called sexual revolution, which is tied in with the the counterculture and I mentioned earlier you know popular culture the role in all of this and those two things are quite closely entwined because the sexual liberation aspect of the counterculture was all about you know freedom and liberation and you know gender equality and stuff so there was there was a lot of ostensibly or sometimes genuinely good stuff there it was like yeah this is a direction the society's moving in uh, increased uh, equality choice you know freedom from uh, discrimination, you know, who couldn't agree with this? You know, this began with, you know, in the bedroom, uh, with people's bodies, uh, you know, free love, no hidden catch, no strings attached and what have you. And you were free to have all sorts of consensual relationships. And why not? Two adults saying, we want to do this. We're not hurting anybody in private. Or actually, if we do want to hurt each other in private and consensual, that's okay. All of that. That's fine. <laughs> and it's always a case of like, do whatever you like. As long as you, you know, you're not hurting anyone else, as long as people are consenting to this. And this has advanced to a point, and this is like such a minefield, um, increasingly so as well, where we're in a position now where for some time, but it's, uh, it's, it's getting more noticeable how all sorts of boundaries are becoming inherently bad. And even the concept of a boundary, boundary is now a dirty word, if you see what I mean. It's like, mm-hmm. the, you know, there shouldn't be any. Um, or they, they need to, at the very least, they need to be fluid so effectively they don't exist. Um, I'm not sure if this is a phrase from your book or not, but there's certainly the, the concept there of, uh, currently where biological boundaries are becoming illegitimate, even though yeah. sometimes they're, they're fairly hard boundaries. It's kind of like, it's just the way it is. Um, you know, like, for example, people self-identifying. I've got a dick, but actually, no, I'm a woman. If you see what I mean, so that's just I'm a lesbian, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly how it is. And there was a something in the uh, the news media uh, within the last few days. I didn't click on it. Uh, I just saw the headline, but it showed a male and female couple, one of whom appeared to be blacked up 
believe it or not. They, they appeared to be Caucasian, but one appeared to be blacked up. And the headline just read along the lines of, like, uh, white couple declare that their baby, they identify as black, so their baby will be black, if you see what mm. I mean. I'm not sure how that's going to work out for them. Good luck with that. It used to be that we had very clear boundaries, moral, because morality is boundaries, yeah, boundary keeping. And um, it's saying this is right and this is wrong. And it might allow for a margin spectrum, you know, context, case specific and all the rest of it. But still, there, there are general things that are wrong and general things that are right. And that that used to be very much centered around the body, I think. I mean, you could say the soul because there was a religious basis for, mor- for morality. So it's definitely about the state of the soul, you know, and how we would be judged by God. But I think that many, if not most, of the um, conditions that we have to be aware of in terms to live a moral life did relate to the body. Uh, and now we seem to be, we seem to have devolved into a, a state where, well, two things. One is, is that morality is considered immoral, as in the new moralism is very judgmental about old old style morality and even the concept morality uh, is considered you know oppressive and, and oppression is the ultimate immorality right so um, and, and also intolerant and there are specific reasons of course homosexuality would be the biggest example there that the old style morality is considered immoral now but my, around that but there's many there'd be many subtler or smaller examples and uh, where I was getting to, I think, was how currently now the, the new morality, the new moralism is, is mind-based and it's about, seems to be about values. Not, it doesn't matter what you do with the body. You can do anything you want with your body. You can even do stuff with other people's body, uh, if it doesn't harm them. Well, actually, maybe even if it harms them at this point, because if I'm a, if I'm a lesbian in a man's body, I want to have sex with a lesbian. I'm sorry, they have to comply to that. Otherwise, they're infringing upon my rights to be who I am, you know? So we got to the point where actually it's not even clear in terms of consent. But certainly, what I do with my body is not anybody's business. It's not even my business. Like, uh, funny because we've got the health fad and the environmental crisis but at the same time we've got something like transgender people even children being given uh, uh, puberty blockers uh, at a very obviously a very young age and uh, very little discussion about well what about their bodies because the bodies are the problem here or they're born in the wrong body oh well okay we've got to get rid of got to fix the body because this mind self is what is what dictates what's right or wrong here. So this is what is occurring to me. We now have a mind-based morality, which uh, intersects very neatly with Crowley's "Do What Thy Wilt." Essentially, whatever you want, whatever. I mean, because obviously he couched it in a higher spiritual language, your true self, which might as well be your, you know, this this weird gender self that says, "I'm a woman," you know, or "I'm a man." Uh, it's so amorphous, and I'm not negating actually the possibility that we might we do have a true deeper soul self i am contesting the idea that it has a gender or genitals or anything like that but 
that it that it might have its own preferences and orientation. Yes, absolutely, and that they might go against society and the norms and the values. Yes, absolutely, but they would not. I can't accept or understand any argument that they would go against the body and what's healthy and right for the body, um, and that they would ascribe to this mind-based morality, which is centers around ideals, hence ideology. It's it's our ideals about what we want out of life, and they're not religious anymore. It used to be the ideal was religious, oriented towards God. I want to live a good, wholesome life and serve God. Right? Okay, that seems naive now. Fair enough. It probably was, but it, at least it was not nihilistic. At least it wasn't simply, I want my gratification and I want it now. And whatever I have to do with or to my body is fine as long as it gratifies me. That that's an infant. That's an infant uh, uh, experience or relationship to the world that just wants its, the boob there the whole time. And it's not. Uh, it's clearly not. It's not autonomous. It's self, not self-oriented, and it can't survive. Like an infant can't survive without caregivers. So so hence we have these. These free-roving or supposedly autonomous ego selves that, that want to use their bodies any way they want and get everything they want, and they're completely, increasingly, completely dependent on the state that's uh, indoctrinating them with this mind-based morality, because they can't they can't take care of themselves without. I mean, if you if you're transgender, you you need the whole apparatus of state to become what you are supposedly. Right? And and if you're anything else, any other kind of marginality, which could include anyone now, really, one way or another. But anyway, you need a safe space. The whole world needs to be your safe space. Well, who, who's going to create that? That that's the state. Only the state can do that by enforcing political correctness and so on and so forth. Okay, so well, I've been talking about to some degree about about sex and and the body and sexualization and different dimensions of that and. In this talk and in the previous one, we did talk about Jimmy Savile, um, whose crimes are well documented. If people don't know, just look it up. A very disturbing but central thread of your book is um, about institutionalized, organized, ritualistic child abuse. Let's not make any bones about that whatsoever. Um, we were talking about the sexual revolution being tied in with the counterculture of the 60s. But even prior to that, uh, you write about scientific sort of sex scientists as it were and some of the you know the early practitioners and thinkers in that area who were trying to approach sex and sexuality from an academic perspective again well before the counterculture a lot of people think it all began there it didn't but that then we're not trying to sort of demonize you know every thinker and writer in that school by any means but that seeks into historically into uh, surprisingly late on 60s 70s even into the 80s a quote from your book quote unquote the steady propagation of the idea of children as sexual beings and we think now about the pedophile information exchange uh, in the uk and there was again this is not often spoken about a lot of people will be surprised to learn how high profile some of that campaigning was at one stage um, for basically the sexualization of children and if we're honest, I mean, let's zoom out and look at all of this. For me, it's all about a question of consent. And this becomes difficult because what does consent really look like? And we, you see this now in rape cases sometimes, like, you know, she said yes, 
but then she says, no, I didn't say yes. And then you're off into litigation and it all gets very unpleasant. So it's a question of consent. When can you give consent? Can you consent to something you know nothing about, for example, like a, you know, a sex act? You know, and also, where do children end and adults begin? And this has always been a thorny issue because in times gone by, we know that chill, what we would call children were actually performing adult roles. And there's a biological imperative that kind of says this is when this male or female are now sexually mature, but that doesn't always correspond with the age of consent in whatever country you happen to live. So there's all these grey areas, and mostly we managed to navigate that quite well. But then there was a lot of thinking around this that was trying to subvert that. And the bottom line for me is, in some of the behaviour, and what what you and I would call abuse, is that people get damaged in this. And there was a lot of uh, argument that you detail trying to say, that actually, this doesn't damage uh, young people, children, whatever it happens to be. It certainly does. And adults can be damaged by... Uh, as in the case of rape, for example, you know, non-consensual sex. And I don't think I write about this enough in Vice Kings, but there's also the betrayal trauma. And, you know, it occurs to me that even, as you say, with adults, if we sexualize each other as adults, it's a very restricting experience. Like, it's, it, it, it can be objectifying, and we can have the experience that, well, all we mean to this person is, is, is a sex object as in something to gratify their desire. Well, that's quite dehumanizing. I'm sure there's many, many adults out there who've experienced that and who've, you know, done it to people without meaning to because, you know, we're not necessarily at home with our bodies and our own sexuality. We don't really know how to handle it. There's a lot of shame around it. And then there can be compensation for the shame. We don't really want to be intimate with the person because then we'll be seen in a, in a, in a, a state that we, we find we're ambivalent about uh, our own sexuality. We don't want it to, to feel that it's being seen by the other. So then the more we objectify the other, we can objectify ourselves. And then it's, and this is why porn is so big. Uh, it's, it's just the mechanics of it and the mechanics that lead to the gratification. There doesn't have to be any question of, you know, how the psyche's impacted or even how the body's impacted, essentially, besides birth control. And, um, so that's a safe way to have sex, in quotes. And, uh, but it's only safe at a certain level. It's not safe in terms of, what harm might be done to trust, respect, love, intimacy, and all those things. And I'm just talking about adults now. So you think about children. If you think about a small child, you know, from any any age up to adolescence, at least, and beyond, of course, because I'm saying it extends into adulthood, but particularly pre-adolescent, before they've even begun to experience their sexuality as an active thing, um... If, if a caregiver, and, and unless they're you know, abducted, and that would be a whole other kind of trauma, then it's going to be a caregiver, somebody that they trusted, uh, treats them as a sexual object of desire, then that's going to create a, lo- a great deal of confusion for the child, and the likelihood that they will go along with it because they understand that this is what's wanted and expected from them and that they want and need the love of that person. Well, you can see how that's you know similar to a woman or a man who makes themselves sexually available because it's the only way they can feel loved. Well, that's sad enough for an adult, and it probably wouldn't be the case for an adult if they hadn't had some formative experience like that as a child. 
But if, if, if as a child it's literally that, that they are approached sexually uh, by an adult, they don't understand what this is, what's being asked for them, except that, but they do understand that it is being asked from them and that they want to please this person. That's, that's a very profound betrayal of the, the, the trust, the contract between an adult and a child, which is that the adult has a kind of responsibility, uh, to take care of the child that precludes using the child of an object of their own gratification. It's an absolute, you know, unqualified betrayal. And, and you're not going to hear about that in terms of the dynamics of, well, pedophile rights and child rights to have consent, which is what pedophiles wanted and want, I suppose, still, for, you know, that that's the only way they can make it, what they do, legal and morally acceptable, is if you, if you also grant the right to children to consent. Um, and then that involves, well, what kind of consent, because if they don't know what they're consenting to, so as you say, you've got that whole grey area, so basically you just have to legal abolish the age of consent, really, entirely, and um, thereby abolish the idea of consent and just push the idea that uh, children are, are already sexual from birth, which Freud presented. And I think that Freud was, you know, it was in a different time to now. It was in a Victorian era where the very idea that children might have any kind of sexual impulses was was verboten, and and so uh, Freud was no doubt right in pointing out that children do have libido. It's just that it's it's not an active libido that translates into active sexual desire unless they're interfered with and sexualized young, and then the libido is activated prematurely. At least that's that's my viewpoint, and I base it. Well, on lots of things, but for starting point, just that sex is procreative primarily. It doesn't mean there isn't a secondary function. I believe there is, besides pleasure, I mean. But um, certainly primarily, and as far as we're biological beings, uh, it's procreative. So so if a, if a person hasn't entered into pubescence, then they don't have a sex drive in, in the simplest sense of biologically to procreate because they can't. So then we have the, which Freud was also big on, you know, the neurotic uh, sexual complexes, which have to do, among other things, which I've already just touched on, with the desire to gain love, affection, intimacy, or simply touch through sex, because we all need that from infants particularly. So if infants don't get that kind of contact, they may well, they would be more receptive to sexual advances, but they may even uh, be more sexual themselves if they recognize that that's a way to get the attention that they want. I mean, a child will do anything to get attention, right? So why not act sexually? And uh, it doesn't mean that they're being driven by a sex drive. It means that they're being driven by a deep need for some sort of affection and touch and they know how to imitate adults. And that's probably rife in our world now with you know, children sexting and the beauty pageants. I mean, I say probably, of course it is. It's, to, it's very rife. And it's another example, I think, of how we've got this bizarre kind of moralism that isn't based on anything to do with the body. Because if, 
if we're just mind selves trapped in these bodies that sometimes get it wrong and generally do because most everyone's got a dysphoria or another um, then uh, what's the difference you know between a child body and, and, a, and, a, and an adult body it's all just uh, it's all just in your point of view right that that's the point that we've we've got to so it does seem as though it's we're not very far from you know, we've created a fertile ground for for, for legitimizing child adult sexual interaction which which was Alfred Kinsey was all about as talking about the counterculture I think that was the point at which uh, at least overtly the that this whole question got divorced from real psychology because you know, that's that's where it needs to be nested in like the, the psychology of of children versus the psychology of adults and how that's as profoundly distinct as the, as the biology well, just tying all of this back to the kind of elite societal power structures that we've been talking about, this this hierarchy uh, and network. I mean, one is basically compromised uh, in order to gain access to the halls of power, purposes of blackmail. This is not a new idea. A bit like in the movie Eyes Wide Shut. And if I'm, if people are kind of thinking, isn't this all about conspiracy theory driven? If they go back to our first talk, we address conspiracy theories and theorists directly that's not what we're talking about exactly and the sex drive is of course exploited in this context as one of the most powerful drives if not the most powerful drive of human beings and that then ties in with and overlaps with the idea that the abused become abusers so beyond just being photographed or filmed in compromising act and therefore, you know, when they, when push comes to shove, you'll do as we say, because we've got the dirt on you. Abused become abusers and the powerless then crave power. So many tyrants and demagogues in history have basically just been like scared little children, scared little mm. boys usually. This also then overlaps with your family story and which you touched upon last time, the story of your brother's life and death, uh, that you felt that his, Life and indeed his passing was basically a cry for help. As is tend to be the case with case studies that I take on, and my brother's, of course, wasn't, you know, I had no choice about that because he was my brother, but he did become a case study after he died and even a little bit before he died. But as is the case with, with these, you know, role models and negative role models that I end up adopting and then wanting to analyze, uh, it all comes to using them as mirrors to recognize my own tendencies. And so I, I, I've certainly had to recognize in myself the, the drive to um, become powerful, the drive to attain power in society from a very, actually a very young age, you know, when I was first consciously identifying with Clint Eastwood, a powerful man. And, um, and you know, over many years, uh, and my brother was my first role model, because my father, as I said, wasn't really present, uh, and his legs were giving out, you know, in my even in my early childhood. So he he certainly wouldn't have symbolised power in that regard. When if I would have visited him at his place of business, as I did sometimes, then I would have seen him as a powerful man there. Obviously, it was my father, so he would have been powerful in that regard. Just anyway, but. Um, he certainly was never any kind of role model to me that I'm aware of, whereas my brother very much was a role model from uh, from an early-ish age, I mean, uh, from adolescence anyway onward. 
I thought I'd got over it, you know, by the time I'd become 20, because he hated me imitating him, even though he would give me casts off old records, Fear of Music, which became my favorite album, his old Nazi great coat, which I wore, there's power for you, identifying with power, uh, and it was a, a genuine one, I think, and uh, and so on. I, fe- I felt I'd found my own way and my own style in my 20s, but actually it was in my late 30s or even 40s, really, that I realized looking back that many of the pathologies or the delusions or the fantasies, to be as mild as I can, that I got swept away by, such as the idea of being the one, the Matrix Warrior, which coincided with this sense that I was uh, channeling Lucifer, offering myself up as a as a vehicle for for a Luciferic entity energy, uh, all that stuff, you know, which I I saw in these very highfalutin esoteric terms, and they were certainly a bid for power. I began to recognize that a, a lot of it, maybe all of it, was coming, not all of it, but most of it was coming down to me still unconsciously trying to be my brother, being possessed by by him. And although I didn't and don't have any conscious memories of him sexually abusing me, I've got a couple of him, or at least one of him physically, you know, physically hurting me, a couple. Although I don't have any conscious memory of any sexual element, I, I have had to come to more than suspect that. feels as though that's quite a likely scenario. And um, the, that's inseparable from how I became possessed by him. He somehow put his uh, charge, you know, the charge of whatever was done to me, he didn't know what to do with it. And this is the thing with sexualizing children. They don't know what to do with that sexual energy, uh, with that prematurely awakened libido. Uh, and so, of course, they become sexualized, but in a way that is, doesn't have the leavening of awareness uh, or, or self-awareness. And so his health is skelter and is uh, also inseparable from that is hooked into a traumatic experience of betrayal. So a lot of latent fear, anxiety, despair, grief and rage. So then the libido is all mashed up with these very powerful, destructive or toxic emotions and and so that's how the sexuality gets expressed and metaphorically i describe that as a charge like an abuser who has their own trauma they 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 want to get free of it they want relief of what's driving them this unnaturally strong sexual drive that isn't just about procreation or an intimate loving response they want to get free of it it torments them uh so they'll find somebody to put it in in, in the case we're talking about here, a child, and then that's even worse for the child. I mean, that child is experiencing whatever that their abuser experienced that's been driving them for the rest of their lives, and then the child will, will you know, grow to put it in wherever they can put it to try and dispel the charge that they're carrying. So I think that that happened with my brother that he he was carrying this charge and and he would would look for ways to to dispel it. And, and so he put some of that charge into me. And so that translated into, you know, a shared sexual neurosis. In my case, it was the inversion because my brother was sexually pre- precocious and sexually promiscuous. And I, you know, he got lost his virginity at 12. I didn't lose my virginity till 27. And, and then I couldn't get laid after that either. You know, it's like I, I was a reluctant celibate 
and I had a philosophy around it of celibacy, and my brother was the opposite. He was a very promiscuous, hedonist, sexual libertine, and he had a philosophy around it. So I was a negative image of him, but that's still the same image. Well, Jason, just as a as we begin to draw things to a close for today, we've been talking about this sort of institutionalized abuse, the hidden in plain sight dimension of it, the power plays going on there, the, the agendas, exploitation, blackmail, uh, just social engineering, all of these different dimensions of the same story. And Jimmy Savile's case, when that was exposed, is possibly the highest profile one, certainly one of the most horrifying cases ever to come to light, certainly in Great Britain. And there's been some other high profile Revelations along these lines of, you know, sexual misconduct, sexual offences, abuse. Obviously, people get um, accused and convicted of these things at all strata of society. But we're thinking now about those people in positions of power, um, some politicians, celebrities. But it still feels very much like, I don't know, we spoke about intuition earlier on. It still feels very much like we're just scratching the surface. I wonder what the future holds if at some point the consequences of not speaking out about these things will become more severe than not for example what would happen if there was if every case like this that we're speaking of like Savills for example that was genuine and verifiable became exposed the true extent of this could we handle the truth like that you know would would society collapse if we fully and this is a question you pose towards the end of your book you know what would if we saw if we saw this in the cold light of day the extent of this uh would we be relieved oh my god okay so it's bad but it's not that bad it wouldn't be like oh my god you know this it's this most people are involved in this i just wonder and could we what would happen if we got to the point where it became somehow normalized this this is the new normal almost like um you know like a new species have inherited the earth and this new way of looking this morality that you speak of that that, that we're thinking about that's gone and this is this is the new earth the new humans are like this yeah yeah well i certainly you consider that possibility i think there's a moving taboo goalpost if you will uh, well, I suppose a taboo is both a stop sign and a, a goalpost. But, I mean, if we consider the dynamics of uh, high-level organized child sexual abuse ritual or otherwise, and all the other things that that intersects with, you know, the sex trafficking, the child pornography and organized crime, the drugs, and so on, um, one of the key elements, as you mentioned, is blackmail. And, and this is central to, I think, uh, to why pedophilia which i think is practically a misnomer is a misnomer because it means child love but it's also used wrongly now like people are being accused of pedophile for having sex uh, accused of pedophilia for having sex with a 16 year old or something and that isn't pedophilia right so so there's a moral hysteria around pedophilia that has been generated i i would say by the same parties or agents or agendas as as that which is actually propagating the, the abuse and and it's useful in more ways than one but one i wanted to underline there is for blackmail like uh if you want to control individuals by uh luring them into um sexual transgressions and and then using that to holding it over them so that they will do your bidding then uh, of course the more demonized 
those transgressions are, the more transgressive they're seen as, the more control you have. You can't destroy someone's career anymore for being homosexual, right? It's it's become it's become the norm, and and there's nothing to be ashamed of. I mean, there are ways in which people still conceal it, of course, but uh, nonetheless, nobody's going to lose a career for being homosexual. So I think there's a moving taboo there, and if and as the the sexualized sexualization and the sexual exploitation or abuse of children becomes more normalized, then the new taboos are introduced. And we could see that this happening, we can see this happening because there's more and more awareness about what's going on, as you say. And and then we as a society, if there is such a thing, but certainly as individuals, um, we are faced with a choice which is basically, do we step away from the society and recognize that it's too toxic to want to participate in? And then, then we're faced with a really difficult option, because it's the abyss, really, back to nature. Or, or do we say, well, okay, there are leaders, there are celebrities, there are entertainers, there are thinkers, there are intellectuals. Maybe they know better than we are, and... Maybe I just need to get with the program like Richard Dawkins saying, hey, let's genetically engineer human meat so that we can all be cannibals without any guilt, and then we'll remove one more taboo. It's the way to freedom, right? That that whole, that's a very strong, uh, tempting, strongly tempting rationale or rationalization because it's a way to carry on living the way we're living and nobody wants to have to undergo, you know, a radical change. It's, it's, it's inherently destabilizing. And so I think that it, it is going that way and it's going the other way, but the other way, like the good and bad cop, maybe the same way. Because if, if it is so endemic to society as it comes to light, I think it's going to be harder and harder to, to come up with the idea that, oh, if we expose these people, we can expunge them from society and somehow retain the superstructure of it and, you know, just get rid of the bad eggs and then <clears throat> we've all we've got is good eggs. Well, no, the rotten apples have spoiled the whole barrel because that's the nature of a collective. We're all inter- intertangled and interwoven. And <clears throat> when you talk about organized ritual abuse, the thing is, and this is coming up in my own life now, and, and finding out it really is going on in neighboring towns. Um, it involve, it does involve ordinary people, not just high-level politicians or the elite, who we can conveniently tell us, what, they're only 1%, let's just find them, kill them, get rid of them, send them to an island, and everything will be fine. No, it doesn't work like that at all. Uh, as I said, it's trickled down into our whole society, and um, it's... Uh, you know, if and as this comes to light, as in my own case, many, many people's, it's not uh, distant celebrities, it's family members. You know, it's people in our community. And, you know, my wife's telling me this about on reservations with the Indian people. When they have a child predator among them who, who rapes somebody's daughter, they, they can't do anything about it, not because there's corruption, but because they have to live together. They can't go and kill him because then his brother or his father will come and kill them and it will just keep... They just have to deal with it in a way that is tolerant without being naive or stupid. Like, 
you, know, you can recognize as a predator and, and do what you need to do to protect the children, of course, but but you can't punish, you can't avenge, you can't condemn that person because you have to learn to live together. And that's that would be what society would be like if we began to allow you know the the structures of power abuse to collapse so at least it wasn't you know protected from on high and then we were just dealing with the the raw reality of of just you know being being embedded in 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 communities where it's going on but at least uh you know we can treat it on a case by case basis and and uh confront it individually uh because if you don't see it you can't confront it right uh, and that's yeah i don't think there's i don't know I don't know if there's many people who who could make that transition somehow because because it's so uh I mean even just going into our own traumatic experiences whatever they may be uh but particularly if they're as extreme as we're talking about here uh that can be a lifetime a lifetime to heal that and um most people are just are just taking the, the medication, as my old geography teacher used to say. Just just take your tablets. Keep taking your tablets. That's what most people are doing, right? Whether it's Netflix or or actual oxycodone. So yeah, I'm not very optimistic about a kind of social awakening at all. I, I think there might be some something else that's emerging, but I suspect it will emerge only from the wreckage. Of what we presently think of as as good society. It's very interesting what you just said about the native reservation there, because my understanding, for reading a bit and having spoken to a few people, was that uh, indigenous societies, typically uh, Native American or otherwise, if there was a sort of that so-called predator in their midst, or like in the context I learned about it in, was that of a, like a psychopath, if there's just someone who's just insane basically if they're threatening the tribe then they will be they will be taken out into the woods and quietly killed because they're recognized as a as a internal existential threat so it's just interesting to hear your um experience there of of like you know not able to do anything about it yeah well it may be the difference between a a colonized people and a non-colonized imagine if there was a native tribe that was uh you know, cohesive that still had its integrity, then there'd probably be the more possibility of agreeing, right? Well, this, and it would be more of an anomaly. Whereas I'm talking about reservations, well, and and our society, they're everywhere anyway. So you can you can uh, expunge the one that gets caught, but you you're probably just scapegoating because there are 99 others that didn't get caught. Yes, well, again, uh, I know I've already had a closing thought, but here's another one for you. And this is without being um, unduly paranoid or pessimistic or anything. I know you've just said that you're not terrifically optimistic in the, the grand scheme of things, but without being unduly negative about it, uh, it does prompt the question, all of what we've discussed in our own minds, uh, subconsciously or consciously, do I know people in my day-to-day life who have had this experience, this unfortunate experience, I've had this done to them. Do I know people who have done this to other people? Don't start doubting everybody around you, you know, like in, in you know, in, in They Live or Invasion of the Body Snatchers, but it's still, it's a question 
uh, that no, not very many people might be prepared to ponder. But for me, it's still in the light of what we said about this, the, the um, potential prevalence of this, it's still an important question, I think. Yeah, well, it's context, you know, I was just yeah. writing about this, it's, with trauma and how I work with traumatized people every day, not every day, but every day I work in the thrift store, but it's not in the context of trauma, they're not coming in and going, this happened to me, and you know, they're, they're just coming in to shop and talk and, and air their grievances, so there's no acknowledgement of what's bubbling underneath the surface, and uh, and so that makes it very difficult makes it very difficult and I think I think indeed if we were able to look uh, at each other more compassionately but also more critically in that way like well you know what what happened to you and what are you complicit with because that's actually if, if it's not being acknowledged it can't be addressed so when we're, we're in the complicit with pretending that we live in a completely different world than the world we in fact live in Jason, today we've been talking about your latest book uh, that's entitled The Vice of Kings, How Socialism, Occultism and the Sexual Revolution Engineered a Culture of Abuse. That's widely available, all the usual outlets. Uh, Before we go, just uh, let listeners know about your website, uh, your podcast, anything else you'd like to throw out there. Okay, thanks, Greg. My website is auticulture, A-U-T-I culture.com and there is a weekly podcast called The Liminalist usually on a Saturday and um, regular blog posts there and my other book particularly relevant would be Prisoner of Infinity about fragmentation and UFOs and Seen and Not Seen about movies kind of but it's really more about trauma and cultural programming so that's a kind of trilogy that I've uh, written loosely in the last few years and lastly i do currently do regular live events on youtube which also uh, entail the option of a um, private meetup discussion group afterwards that's on saturday mornings at pacific time splendid well jason thank you so much once again for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com thanks greg been fun